are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here for another question and answer time that we're going to post on a Thursday afternoon. And of course, it's staying up on our YouTube channel so that anybody who's interested in archiving these or getting in on the podcast or whatever it is can access these just uh, weekly times where we go through and answer questions. Uh, When I'm around, we take the questions live. When I'm not, we take them from social media or email or wherever they come in. Today, we're going to begin with a question that really comes to me from somebody called My Menagerie. And uh, they ask this question. It's basically, what about medical marijuana? And here's the question they ask. What would be the answer for someone who could use medical marijuana to combat pain? I'm in a great deal of pain constantly. I'm also unable to take narcotic pain meds as I'm allergic. The only one I can take just takes the edge from the pain. Until I get this answer, I won't pursue it. Well, my menagerie, I want to say, first of all, God bless you. Because I detect in your question, you just want to know, is it okay for you to use medical marijuana? I detect in your question that you really want to please the Lord in this. I mean, I get that last line from your question, until I get this answer, I won't pursue it. I I I love that attitude that says, yes, um, I want to do what pleases God. And I'm not going to rush to comfort if it's not in the will of God for me. And so I think you're asking a very wise and godly question here. Now, as far as marijuana use in general, I have a video, you can look it up on the YouTube channel, that deals with this whole thing of the use of marijuana. Uh, This was a message that I did at the church I pastored at the time, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. I did it as California passed a law that permitted Uh, widespread marijuana sales without any restriction, really, in uh, the state of California. I suppose about the only restriction is an age restriction. I think that was a bad law for the state of California. Uh, I think it's had a detrimental effect on the state, and it will continue to do so. But that's not really what we're talking about in your case. In your case, I think it's very important for us to understand you're talking about the medicinal use of marijuana. And my menagerie, I have a very simple answer for you. If it's prescribed by a legitimate doctor, you should go ahead and use it. Now, let me clarify this. First of all, I say prescribed by a legitimate doctor. Because one of the things we saw here in the state of California before uh, the use and sale of marijuana was permitted in a widespread way Before that happened, there was the use of what's termed to be um, medicinal marijuana. And the problem with medicinal marijuana is anybody could get the most phony doctor to give them a phony prescription. All you had to do was go into one of these doctors that was kind of prearranged and say, I'm stressed. Okay, here's a prescription for medical marijuana. In other words, it was just a sham. It was a phony system. But I I tell you. If a real medical doctor, as part of a prescription for what's right for you, prescribes marijuana or, you know, the THC or whatever it is, the particular product that you uh, could use in a medicinal sense, a truly medicinal sense, then you should use it. 
My menagerie, I just want to say, we make a clear distinction between the use of drugs and the abuse of drugs. Now, when it comes to the use of drugs, we're grateful for modern medical science and the things that they can deliver us in the way that they can help us in our lives and with our health and all that stuff. And I'm not saying that every prescribed drug is good. There's a case to be made that in general, there's a lot of overprescripting of medications and such like that. But I'm just talking about the good and appropriate use of medications and drugs. And we're, we're grateful for that. The use and the proper use of drugs is a gift from God. The abuse of drugs, very obviously, it's something that Christians should not pursue. So if it's prescribed by a legitimate doctor, then you would take it according to the doctor's directions, and it would hopefully have the effect that the doctor and you are hoping that it'll have. I mean, it's that way for just about any medication. So I would advise against self-medication with marijuana or alcohol or illicit drugs or anything else where you just say, hey, uh, I'll figure out my own need and take one out. No, well, you want to avoid self-medication. You want to avoid phony doctors. But if a legitimate doctor prescribes it for you, then take it according to the doctor's orders as long as the doctor tells you to do. And I think you have absolutely no problem before God with that. You're talking about the legitimate use of a drug not the abuse of a drug. I hope that helps you, my menagerie, and God bless you. I mean, let's come back and remember what it says very simply in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It tells us, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's about the abuse of alcohol, and you can extend that out to drugs. Same thing with Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, where it cautions us, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is laid astray by it is not wise. Again, that's specifically talking about alcohol in a few different forms, but the principle easily passes over to uh, drugs such as the abuse of marijuana, not the appropriate medicinal use of it prescribed by a legitimate doctor. Okay, I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, I want to go on to a second question now, and this one comes from Hosea. He says, greetings, blessings, uh, thank you, great work at EnduringWord.com. What Jose is referring to there is a website that we operate here. It's called EnduringWord.com, and it features a written commentary that I have on the entire Bible. Now, it's available on the website in English. It's available translated into Spanish, and we're working on translation into several other languages as well. So that's what Jose is talking about when he talks about EnduringWord.com, although the website also has a lot of video resources and a lot of audio resources. But here is his question. Could you answer this question? What is the difference between grace and mercy? Thanks for answering. Jose, I love a question like that. I think it's a great question. What is the difference between grace and and mercy. Well, it's really just this simple. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. I mean, to use sort of a silly illustration, if somebody gave you a hundred dollars 
just because they wanted to give it to you, not because you did anything for it, but just because they wanted to give it to you, that would be grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. In other words, if you're speeding and the policeman pulls you over and you were speeding and you deserve a ticket and he writes the ticket and he's about to give it to you, but he does not give you what you do deserve. He holds it back and he says, I'm going to tear it up. That's mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's God's undeserved, unmerited kindness towards us because of Christ Jesus. That's what grace is. Mercy, that's God not giving us punishment or judgment or some type of thing like that, that we do deserve. Both of them are expressions of God's love, expressions of God's kindness. But please remember this, by their definition, both grace and mercy can never be deserved. Grace, by its very character, and we're talking about biblically speaking, we use that sort of silly illustration of somebody giving you $100. If you deserve the $100, then it's not grace, because then you've earned it in some way. Grace is giving, giving what is not deserved. In the same way, we use the illustration of the policeman and the traffic ticket that he's writing out, because you were speeding. Listen, if you weren't speeding then it wasn't mercy. If you're innocent, then it's not mercy. That's just justice. Grace and mercy by their very character are undeserved gifts. And that's why we need to thank God for his love, for his kindness that bestows upon us such wonderful grace and mercy. All right. I'm going to go to a couple questions by someone named Gene. Gene, I'm thankful that you write your questions. Uh, I'm going to read this because uh, it'll kind of move your heart just a little bit here. Gene's question begins like this. David, what if I went through suffering for years with emotional pain when I was an immature Christian and resisted the Lord? Fought and despaired, became bitter, as you say, even let go of his hand for a time. Seeing it all the more clearly now, I completely agree and know that I need to welcome and, as you say, treasure the times that he uses suffering to rebuild me inside. Now, on to Gene's question. They write, Is all of that wasted now because I didn't properly respond before? Is it too late for me to submit it to him and ask him to do what I wouldn't accept before? I'm in my late 60s and want so much to comply with the Lord and serve him to the end. I have repented of my response, asked forgiveness, and I know he forgives, but I don't want his discipline to be wasted as to warned, be warned. Thank you. I hope you get this somehow. Well, Gene, I did get it. And I just want you to know, Gene, dear Gene, it's not too late. Your life can still make a difference for God's kingdom and for Jesus Christ. And I know, I understand that it can be painful to look backwards over our life and think about how much we've wasted. Think of all the years, think of all the decades, think of all the opportunities that I've wasted. And I know, Gene, that, that probably gives you a real sense of pain. It's probably very difficult for you to think about that and keep your eyes dry. But Gene, I want to assure you that God is so pleased and he is so glorified by somebody, even if they're in their late 60s, which I hope isn't all that old, 
But even if somebody is in their late 60s and says, I've wasted so much of my life, I want whatever I have left to count for the Lord. God is so pleased by that. And he says, let's you and I work together to make the most out of this moment right here. Listen, Gene, there is a sense in which all the time that has gone by, it is like water that has passed into the ocean. We can never recapture it again. And so there's a sense in which there is uh, a legitimate godly sorrow over those wasted years. But there's also a place to just hell sorrow over it for a time. And now I'm going to put away my sorrow. I'm going to put away my sadness. And I'm going to focus on serving God in the moment. So, Gene, I don't know how God wants you to redeem the time. Maybe he'll give you a real ministry of prayer. Maybe he'll give you a ministry of giving and supporting to others. Maybe he'll give you a ministry of speaking a good word for Jesus Christ in a needful moment. I don't know what it would be that God would use you in your particular place. But please know this, Gene, and please know everybody, it's not too late. Even if you feel like you've wasted many things and many years and many opportunities in your life, why don't you just put a stop to that right now? Realize that you can't undo the past, although I'm very happy to hear that you've repented, that you've asked God's forgiveness. It's what you have to do. With a broken heart over what you've done in the past, now look to the future. Look to now, this present moment. What can you do to bring glory to Jesus Christ today? Who can you pray for? Who can you support? Who can you strengthen? Who can you speak a good word for in the name of Jesus Christ? Gene, it's not too late. What God has given you in this moment and whatever moments you have left, and I pray that for you, Gene, it would be a good, long, healthy life remaining, can be given to the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. There's a passage in one of the minor prophets. I think it's in the prophet Joel where God has this wonderful word that's almost become a little bit of a cliche, a saying among Christians, but it's a good saying. It talks about God promising to restore the years that the locust has eaten. The idea is these things have been judged, they've been put away, they've been bad experiences, but God says, I'm going to bring restoration in the midst of Gene, that's my prayer for you and for everybody who's troubled over this idea that they've wasted their life, that maybe it's too late. It's not too late. Today, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, today is the day of salvation. Today, in this moment, is the day to say, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. And God is so pleased that you have and that you are. All right, now, Jean asks another question. And Jean, I'm happy to get to this one too. She asks this, what about the reformed understanding of covenant? What is it about that you don't agree with, David? I'm trying to understand the nuances, especially where issues of common terms are used by different branches of the family of God. Gene, that is a fantastic question. And I want you to know that I feel like I can only give you a preliminary uh, answer to that. Why? Because this is something I'm kind of studying myself right now. I want to feel like I understand much more the reformed idea of covenant theology and what they mean by it, and how they support it biblically. But from what I do understand at this time, and again, I confess that I'm sharing this from a somewhat limited understanding. From what I do understand at the moment, I would say that my fundamental disagreement with the Reformed understanding of covenant theology is I question their emphasis, their great emphasis, on what is known as the covenant of grace, 
the covenant of redemption, which, according to my preliminary understanding, is a broad covenant that God has established from the very beginning that encompasses all of his work. And it's actually sort of the central covenant of all the scriptures. Uh, It's the central covenant under which all the other covenants are ordered and under which God's people from beginning to end find salvation. Now, the problem I have with that is that it's really not spelled out scripturally. It's sort of a conclusion that's drawn by putting together a few different passages. But I got to say, the few different passages that they put together, to, to my preliminary understanding, they lack the clarity and the specificity that would give me the insurance that, yes, there is a such thing as a broad-based covenant of grace or covenant of redemption, and, and that it is very important to our theology. Now, when I read the Bible, I see that God made a covenant with Abraham. There's no doubt about it. I see that God made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. I see that God made a covenant with David in the book of 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, actually. And I see that God made a new covenant instituted by Jesus Christ. That kind of covenant theology, now I'm not even talking about the covenant he made with Noah, that's interesting, but sort of in a different category. But those four covenants and how they are ordered and how they are organized, I think is very important for understanding God's work of redemption throughout all ages and his plan for the ages. But those covenants, I believe, are clearly spelled out in the scriptures. This covenant of redemption or covenant of grace is more understood by nuance and inference Now, generally speaking, and again, I'm speaking with preliminary understanding. I think I've made that clear. In my thinking, that's not enough to hang a lot of theological weight upon something. I want more than inference. I want more than that kind of outline that we're going to fill in. I'd rather have it be a scriptural outline outline that is given for us. So that, that that's my um, preliminary analysis, something I want to dig a little bit deeper in. And when I feel like I have an accurate enough understanding of the um, theology uh, that isn't so much what I have understood in the past, uh, I, I, want, I want to talk about that. If some of our listeners feel like they can explain some of these concepts to me, Please put it in the uh, comments. I'm interested to read them. And uh, we'll figure out some of these things. Maybe we'll figure them out together. Okay. Jeff writes a question and he asks, Were King Asa and King Saul saved? Now, he's referring to King Saul, whose life and career is mentioned in the book of 1 Samuel. Matter of fact, you could say that Saul, in many ways, sort of dominates First uh, Samuel as being the first king over Israel. So you're asking, were King Saul and King Asa saved? And let me deal first with King Saul. Okay, first and foremost, at the end of it all, we can't say we know for sure from an outside perspective about any person in the scriptures, whether or not they're in heaven or hell, 
uh, unless the scriptures specifically tell us that. So we're, we're just sort of drawing some inference here. And my inference from what the scriptures say is that King Saul was not saved. That his heart was filled with so much rejection of God and his plan that Saul himself was not saved. And again, I just take that from the account going from 1 Samuel, from the earlier chapters where he first comes as a king, to his real rejection of God, to his hatred of David, uh, to his death there at the end of 1 Samuel. It seems like when you combine the entire picture together, it's no, no. Saul does not seem like a saved man to me. Now, what about King Asa? King Asa, his life is described mainly in 1 Kings chapter 15. And uh, he was a man who did a lot of good things. For example, it says, and I'm quoting to you, 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11, that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. That's sort of the general analysis of his reign. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. Verse 14 of 1 Kings chapter 15 says this, that Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, these are things that sort of indicate a heart that was really given over to God. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 16 gives us a more complete story about Asa. It talks a little bit more about his successes and a few of his failures. But the entire picture together just sort of leads me to uh, to sort of conclude, yeah, I would think that Asa was saved. Those remarks that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, that his heart was loyal to the Lord all his days, as it says in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 14, that sort of says to me, Asa, yeah, I think I'll see him in heaven. Okay, uh, another question from a YouTube viewer is asking, that they are so interested in the theology of election, free will, and associated concepts. Do I have broadcast or writings on this? Um, now, I think that's a great question. And maybe in future question and answer broadcasts, I'll drill down deeper in these ideas of election and free will and all those sort of uh, concepts that are connected to it. Right now, I would just say, maybe you could go to my audio material now, you're not going to find my audio alone material, at least not all of it yet, on YouTube. You'll find it at my website, EnduringWord.com. Click under the Media tab, and you'll find audio and video, and you can just go to the Romans audio. I think that's something that's helpful, is to go to that. And I'll just look to do a little bit more on that, either in videos that we post from my library of teaching that we're just putting up piece by piece every week. In the next year or two, we'll probably have my entire video backlog or whatever loaded up online. But then I, I also want to simply add, uh, say that maybe I'll be able to deal with it more in special videos that I make for our YouTube audience and beyond. Okay, uh, I think we're going to deal with one more question and then a few closing comments. This is from Jim. Jim is asking a question about my text commentary. And let me say, first of all, Jim, very pleased that you're using my text commentary. I'm just delighted when anybody finds it helpful to use that commentary. Now, the question comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, that passage where it describes the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Matter of fact, I'm going to turn over to that passage right here in my Bible. 
Acts chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. It says, And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now, this is Saul of Tarsus's his response back to the Lord. This is Saul's response. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So trembling and astonished, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, in my commentary on Acts chapter 9, I note that there's a section in verses 5 and 6 that, by all the indication we have from the ancient manuscripts, is what I'm talking about, that the best ancient manuscripts do not include some of the words that are quoted. In other words, and I'm just looking at the marginal note here in my King James Version, that the words starting from, in verse 5, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, all the way through, then the Lord said to him, in verse 6, are not in the best ancient manuscripts. Now, what I think happened here is that some scribe took the description that Paul gave of his conversion in Acts chapter 22, specifically verse 10 and some of the associated verses, and Acts chapter 26, verse 14, some scribe took the words that Paul later, as he, Paul described his conversion several times in the book of Acts. And each time he describes it, he, he includes a few more details. He's not making them up. I mean, these things really happened. So I don't have any doubt that the Lord actually spoke those words, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I don't have any doubt about that. That's in the original text. The part that is in question from some of the oldest and best manuscripts begins at, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, I don't have any I don't have any hesitation saying that Jesus spoke those words because they're included in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. But in the original manuscript of Acts chapter 9, verse uh, 5, it doesn't seem to be in there. And it's a very simple thing. This isn't really complicated. They were genuinely spoken, just not recorded in Acts chapter 9, and and later on, as Paul explained the story of his conversion, as he does several times in the book of Acts, he just filled in more of the details of what happened. This is a common thing when we tell a story. We'll tell a story, and again, we're not making things up, but we'll just add different details from the story that perhaps we didn't mention the first time around. So I, I don't want to give anybody any reason to doubt that those words were spoken. But we have to be honest with the manuscripts. And, and if, if, if Greek scholars and manuscript analysts go through and say, our best judgment is that these particular words aren't in the oldest and the best manuscripts, then, then we need to examine that evidence carefully and sort of take it for what it is. The, the New Testament 
is strong enough in its manuscript strength to bear that kind of scrutiny. We don't have to be afraid of that kind of scrutiny. The New Testament, the closer you look, the more you're going to be impressed with the textual integrity of the New Testament. So I guess that's what I'm just trying to say, is that um, we have to be honest with the manuscript evidence. And if there's only a few ancient manuscripts, and some of those very late, not early manuscripts, but very late manuscripts that include those words, then it's fair enough to say that the best judgment is those words in Acts chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 were not originally penned by Luke, but their true words as we find them later on in Acts chapter 22, verse 10 and Acts chapter 26, verse 14. So again, I, I hope that's helpful for you. I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear with it, but I gave the best I can. Okay, now, one other thing I want to deal with, and I'm not going to read you the question but I get from time to time, I don't get very many of them, but I get kind of some nasty questions from time to time. And what I mean is like questions that are basically, hey, and again, even if they don't say these words, this is kind of the attitude. The question's kind of asking me, hey, dummy, don't you read your Bible? <laughs> you know, things like that. I, I want you to know, usually I don't answer those questions. Most of the time, I leave them up in the question feed, in the comment feed. Most of the time, and I can't say I'll keep this policy forever, but it's how I'm doing it right now. Most of the time, I leave challenges and criticisms and objections in the comment feed. I don't mind if people read them. I hope I'm secure enough in what I believe and what I teach to just say, I don't mind if people think that I'm wrong on certain points. I trust the viewers of this YouTube channel, the listeners to the podcast. I trust you to be able to listen to the evidence and figure it out. So don't take it that just because I don't defend myself against a sort of hostile questioner, especially if the attitude in their question is, hey, dummy, don't you read your Bible? Uh I'll just leave it and let people figure it out for themselves, whether or not the person has a stronger case or I do. Most of the time, when people leave those sort of nasty comments or questions, most of the time I'm scratching my head and just say, did you even listen to what I said? Because the issues that I bring up in my video, you don't seem to deal with them. You don't seem to deal with, with, uh, with what I really talked about in the video. So uh, I'm not going to read the specific question that prompted me to say that, but I just want you to know my policy. I, In general, I don't mind leaving up questions that are a bit hostile or contradictory to what I thought. Some people want to kind of find a soapbox. Hey, whatever. I, I trust you, our YouTube viewer, and you, our podcast listener, to figure these things out. And I, I do want to say, if there's something that's profane, or, you know, just inappropriate. Well, of course, we'll delete those comments. There's no need to keep those up. So that's about it for right now. And that'll be it for this week's question and answer time. I hope you can join us on a future uh, question and answer thing. Don't be afraid to let us have your questions. I'll deal with them the best I can. If you do send a question, check back in subsequent videos to see if I dealt with it. And, and go to EnduringWord.com for Bible resources. Uh, my written commentary on the entire Bible, which some people find helpful. 
uh, audio video resources, a weekly devotional that you can get by email. I have a special email that I send out every other week to pastors, preachers, and Bible teachers. Uh, there's lots of things. And I want to thank you for joining me. I want to thank you for those who pray for the work of Enduring Word. I think God is using the work that we do, and I'm super grateful for those people who partner with us in it. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.